0: Okay, so uh, over the last couple weeks, we've been dealing with um, the inerrancy of Scripture. And uh, we've been looking, as your note sheet says there, you can see at the bottom, an article by Greg Bonson called The Inerrancy of the Autographer, which means The Inerrancy of the Original Writings. And as we've looked at this over the last couple weeks, just to recap here for those who, who weren't with us, the first week we looked at what was the biblical attitude of Jesus and the apostles, mainly, toward what they were holding in their hand in their day, which was a copy of the Old Testament. It was not the original. How did that affect them? Did they kind of pull back and say, well, this is only a copy of the Word of God, it doesn't have the same authority as the original one. No, we, we see them affirming, not questioning at all, that what they held in their hand was the very Word of God, even though it was a copy of the original. And then last week, Desmond walked us through why it's important to restrict inerrancy to the original writings, the original documents, and the rationale behind that, and uh, did a great job on that. So if you weren't here last week, you can go back, it's online, you can listen to that. But But the question that might arise from this is whether this is not, after all, just a trivial discussion, since the originals are beyond our reach. One opponent of inerrancy says this, Since the original documents are inaccessible and apparently irrecoverable, the ascription of inerrancy to these documents is in the last analysis practically irrelevant. Another opponent to this view asks, How does it affect the value of today's errant record that the error was not there originally? I think those are good questions. They need to be considered and and thought through. And hopefully, as we work through this, we'll be able to to answer that. But we would want to say, for those who hold to the inerrancy of the original writings, and why that's important, even though we don't have those originals, is that it enables us to consistently confess the truthfulness of God. And that is a massively important reason. Only with an inerrant autograph or original can we avoid attributing error to the God of truth. An error in the original would be attributable to God himself because he, in the pages of Scripture, he takes responsibility for the very words of the biblical authors. Errors in copies, though, as we've looked at over the last few weeks, are the responsibility of the scribes that are involved in that, in which case, God's truthfulness is not impugned. Some years ago, a liberal theologian, in talking about this issue of the inerrancy of the autographer, he, he tried to use an analogy that, in his mind, equated well with this issue. He said this, that it was a matter of small consequence whether a pair of pants were originally perfect if they were now ripped. To which a conservative theologian replied, it might be a matter of small consequence to the wearer of the pants, but the tailor who made them would prefer to have it understood that it did not leave his shop that way. (laughs) I think that's a good uh, assessment of that, right? So, we don't attribute the rip in the pants, so to speak, to the tailor, to the Lord. So, if the scriptures, like the works of other ancient documents, the works of history like Homer, if they came to us merely by God's providential working, general providence in history... Uh, The original might make little difference to us, but when we talk about the inspiration of Scripture, that God breathed out these very words, then that becomes another matter altogether. Because this book is unlike any other book in history. E.J. Young says this, Amazing indeed, is the cavalier manner in which modern theologians relegate this doctrine of an inerrant original scripture to the limbo of the unimportant. And this is the reason why. For the veracity or the truthfulness of God and the perfection of the Godhead are involved in that doctrinal outlook. I think that's a very important point. And the reason for that, and I want to look at a few passages here, is because God tells us in his word that his words are pure words. Psalm 12, verse 6. Somebody want to read that for us? The words of the Lord are
1: pure words, like silver refined in a furnace on the ground, purified
0: seven times. Okay, so the words of the Lord are pure words. Psalm 1830. This God... His way is perfect. The word of the Lord proves true. In other words, it's tested and it shows itself to be true. And then one more from Proverbs 30, verse 5. Every word of God proves true. He is a shield to those who take refuge in him. Now, if there are mistakes in that word, however, then we know better than this, that it's not pure. If the original writings of Scripture are marred by little bits of mistake, then God simply has not told us the truth concerning his word. To assume that God could breathe forth a word that contained mistakes is to say, in effect, that God himself can make mistakes. And the minute that we say that, we need to leave here, go back home, and go to bed, and eat, drink, and be merry, because we have no idea what truth is outside of the Word of God. We've lost the ultimate foundation of theological knowledge, if that is the case. What assurance would you have of your salvation if that were true? How would you know the scriptures that you're looking at aren't errant? The promises of God would become of no effect in our lives because they might contain error in them. I want us to think about this as well. If the original manuscripts of scripture were errant, then we couldn't possibly know the extent of error in them. The range of possible faults would be virtually limitless if that were the case. For who can say at what point an errant God stops making mistakes? Who could presume to know what boundary to set upon God's mistakes? On the other hand, when we think about errors that we have in our copies, right, we recognize that these are correctable by what's called textual criticism, a topic that Desmond's going to spend a whole class on next week in wrapping up this talk on inerrancy. Let me see if I have this. Okay, no, I don't. Let me, let me give you this, this quote here. It has been said that since there is no need for a guaranteed inerrancy now, There is no reason to suppose that inerrancy was ever given. However, we must hold on the one hand to the absolute truth of direct divine utterance. God does not approximately speak the truth. Human expositions of what God has said on the other hand do approximate to truth and one can speak meaningfully of different degrees of approximation. Right? So When Pastor Jack or Pastor Rick or myself or anybody else gets into the pulpit, we're not claiming infallibility through what we say unless it's directly tied to the Word of God, right? Unless we're speaking that. We do our best to understand that and interpret it correctly and bring that forth, but none of us would dare say that every word that we speak this morning is inerrant in and of ourselves, only as we faithfully communicate the word of God, which we try to do to the best of our ability. The quote goes on here, it says, if the term essential infallibility, what what do you think that means? What do you think essential infallibility means? Just
2: the core teaching is the sense that that, the 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 basics of the scripture, not the details, but the basics of it would be considered without error. Everything else is subject to...
0: Yes. Good. So, if the term essential infallibility is applied to a divine utterance, it has no precise meaning. It's like medicine that is known to be adulterated or mixed, but adulterated to an unknown degree. When, however, essential infallibility is referred to scriptures once inerrant, but now slightly corrupt... The meaning can, within limits, be precise. We know to a close approximation the nature of the tiny textual adulterations, which again, Desmond's going to, you don't want to miss that class next week. It's really going to be massively encouraging as we think about textual criticism and looking at the copies that we have. The quote finishes and says, the bottle is, speaking, using that in reference to the copy that we have of the Word of God, the bottle is, as it were, plainly labeled. This mixture is guaranteed to uh, contain less than 0.01% of impurities. And praise the Lord, where those impurities are found, you have a footnote. That tells you, is the word your or our? Things like that are where you see differences. So the fact that we don't presently have the inerrant original does not destroy the importance of the claim that they existed as such. Cornelius Van Til, a former longtime professor at Westminster Theological Seminary, remarks that when one is crossing a bridge which has been covered by a swollen river, placing the surface of the bridge under a few inches of water... He might not be able to see the bridge, but he's very glad, nonetheless, that it is there. He would not think for a moment that this unseen bridge is without any significance and try to cross the river at just any other point. I think that's a good way to look at that. So in looking at our present Bibles, we can't see the autographer, the original exactly, but we should be glad that the inerrant originals undergird our walk and constitute a bridge that can bring us to God. We would hopefully not try to be reunited with him by just any other course because we don't have the original writings. The value of our present Bibles derives its dependence upon that errorless original. R.L. Harris gives this illustration to help solidify this point in our minds. And I thought this was a really good illustration. He said Suppose we wish to measure the length of a certain pencil. With a tape measure, we measure it at six and a half inches. A more carefully made office ruler indicates six and nine sixteenths inches. Checking it with an engineer scale, we find it to be slightly less than 6.58 inches careful measurement with a steel scale under laboratory conditions reveals it to be 6.577 inches. Not satisfied? We send the pencil to Washington, where master gauges indicate a length of 6.5774 inches. The master gauges themselves are checked against the standard United States yard marked on a platinum bar preserved in Washington. Now, Suppose that we would read in the newspapers that a clever criminal had run off with that platinum bar and melted it down for the precious metal. What difference would that make to us? Very little. None of us have ever seen the platinum bar. Many of us perhaps never realized it existed, which I didn't when he was telling this, <laughs> when he was given. Yet, we casually use tape measures, rulers, scales, and similar measuring devices. These approximate measures derive their value from their being dependent on more accurate gauges. But even the approximate has tremendous value if it has had a true standard behind it. I thought that was a really good illustration that he use with that. Nor? Yes.
3: We are so prone to error ourselves. Right. We can't even, like, like, even if we discuss doctrine, all you have to do is go, and everybody's got a little take on It's like, uh, the, you know, the illustration of having five blind men that have never seen an elephant yes. before. They, they all, you can't say that because you grab the trunk that it's the whole elephant. So, right. And what about the versions of Bible? You know, they come out differently, but it's not a. um, We don't say well because there's a variety of versions that we stop believing because they are all kind of different. Yes. The point is that we can go confidently that we have so much of that pure original. Yes. That we can live confidently on. Yes. We're okay, like you said. You know, even if we don't have that that platinum bar standard. Yeah. The Word of God is, is living, it's active, it's eternal, and I truly believe that God has given us what we can handle, and even that is too much for us. Right. That the Word of God really is way more than that, and yeah. we're not capable yeah. where we're at on earth to yeah. grab everything, That we're yeah. going to spend eternity to discover the infinite Word. Right. And I yeah. know that it's like an oxymoron, How can you, but we'll, when we get there, we'll find out.
0: Right, yeah, amen. Amen. Good stuff. So, uh, thinking through that aspect of it, we conclude that even though we can be blessed without an errorless original and can formulate the great doctrines of the faith, the inerrant original is not thereby rendered unimportant. We don't just throw up our hands and say, well, that's it, we don't have it. It doesn't matter. No, it does matter, it matters greatly. Because the copies that we have are based on those originals. And the claim that God did not have to give the scripture, scriptural originals inerrantly is false and very damaging. God can work through our errant copies to bring us to saving faith. If you're in Christ this morning, you are a testimony to that. But that doesn't diminish the qualitative difference between the perfect original and the imperfect copy. Just as an imperfect map may bring us to our destination, but it nevertheless is qualitatively different from a strictly accurate map with all the fine details. So there's there's tremendous importance for us in confessing this doctrine. And in drawing the distinction that's implicit in it, that inerrancy is restricted to the scriptural autographer. Uh, we, we can readily admit that God did not keep the copyists from error and that nevertheless the church has grown and survived with inerrant text. But to infer from that that the inerrant Original was not vital to God or necessary for us would be devastating and it would certainly undermine the faith we profess which is rooted in the scriptures. So the importance of original inerrancy is that it enables us to confess consistently the truthfulness of God himself. God is not a God of errors and we thereby can avoid saying that one who calls himself the truth made errors and was false in his statements. However, some may still ask, based on that, that if God took the trouble and he deemed it crucial to secure the entire accuracy of the original text of scripture, why didn't he take the care to preserve the copies errorless? Why did he allow it to be corrupted in some measure in its transmission. Now, there's been much speculation on that. You can read all kinds of different reasons as to why men think that way and try to probe the mind of God, which I don't think is all that profitable in this one. God hasn't specifically told us. Um, Here's what we confess at the end of the day. Why God was not pleased to preserve the text of the original copies of the Bible, we do not know. (laughs) <laughs> we would look to Deuteronomy 29 and we say, the secret things belong to the Lord our God and the things revealed belong to us. And we could spend much, try- much time trying to speculate on, I think this is why God didn't preserve these errorless. But at the end of the day, what would that accomplish? right? Speculation. And trying to probe into the mind of God something that he hasn't revealed to us. God hasn't shared with us his motivation for allowing the text of the original to become slightly corrupted in particular copies of the scripture. However, possession of an answer as to why God permitted this is not a necessary condition to holding to the restriction of inerrancy to the autographer. We don't want to just throw that away and say, well, it doesn't matter, so the inerrancy of the original doesn't matter either. We want to be careful not to go that far. It it matters greatly because it says something about the character of God. So, by way of summary on this point here of the importance of this restriction, uh, the doctrine of original inerrancy permits doubts only about the copies of the original text. Doubts that can be silenced and dealt with honestly. We're not going to just bury our heads in the sand, right, and say, well, we've got some copies and there's some errors in those, but let's just pretend they're not there. <laughs> right? But those doubts can truly be silenced and dealt with honestly by textual critical methods that Desmond will hit on more next week. So, up to this point, we've seen that the doctrine of restricting inerrancy to the biblical autographer is really far from trivial or irrelevant. It has tremendous importance because it upholds and maintains the veracity of God. And then that leads into this last point on the uh, outline there. The assurance of possessing God's word today. And that that's important, right? Because as you think through this, right? You say, well, how do we know where they are? And what assurance can I have that... If I believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, I will be saved. How do I know that that maybe wasn't what was said? Where, where, where is my faith rooted in, in that reality? And so the, the, this is a very important question to, uh, to think through. As we've looked at in the previous section here, we've insisted and defended the restriction of inerrancy to the Autographic Text of the Bible. And we want to make sure that we can silence again any of those doubts that may arise in our hearts, that what we possess is the genuine word of God in our present copies. The inspiration and inerrancy of Scripture is reserved for the original text, and it applies to the current text only to the extent that it reflects the original. We want to make sure that we know the existing copies that we have are not substantially different from those original here. How can we know that? And the answer here is twofold. One, I'll deal with mainly today. The second one, I'll just kind of overview it and let Desmond pick up on that next week. But the answer is twofold. Number one, we know it from the providence of God. And number two, from the results of textual criticism. Okay, so we know it from the, how can we know that our existing copies are substantially correct transcriptions of the original, the providence of God, and the results of textual criticism. If we don't assume that God has spoken clearly and given us an adequate means of learning what he has actually said, then the entire story of the Bible and its portrayal of the plan of God for man's salvation makes no sense whatsoever. James Orr said this, Because the preservation of the text of Scripture is part of the transmission of the knowledge of God, it is reasonable to expect that God will provide for it, lest the aims of his revealing himself to men be frustrated. Right? You get that quote, what he's saying there? God has laid out for us his plan to save mankind. And the glory that is involved in that for himself. To suppose that God would not superintend that or oversee that would be ridiculous based on what he has said to us in his word. That he will oversee that. And just in case you get tripped up on what Or is saying here when he says, because the preservation of the text of Scripture is part of the transmission of the knowledge of God, right? That sounds like he's undermining the sufficiency of the word, right? But he's not. He's speaking about general revelation, and special revelation, right? That God has revealed himself to all mankind through creation as Romans 1 tells us, but especially, specifically to us through the word of God and his saving plan. That's how we can know more about him. So the providence of God is it superintends matters so that copies of scripture do not become so corrupt as to become unintelligible for God's original purposes and giving it or so corrupt to create a major falsification of his message message's text scripture itself affirms to us that God's word will abide forever right and that his providential control through that He secures the fulfillment of such a promise. Uh, John Skilton gives a helpful response to our current questions, and the majority of these guys that I'm mentioning, if you're unfamiliar with them, the majority of them are professors at Westminster or were professors at Westminster. Uh, Bonson is a graduate of Westminster, so he's quoting a lot from from these guys. So, uh, men who have studied these things out uh, carefully. But Skilton says this, We will grant that God's care and providence have not preserved for us any of the original manuscripts either of the Old Testament or of the New Testament. We will furthermore grant that God did not keep from error those who copied the scriptures during the long period in which the sacred text was transmitted in copies written by hand. But we must maintain that the God who gave the scriptures, who works all things after the counsel of his will, has exercised a remarkable care over his word, has preserved it in all ages in a state of essential purity, and has enabled it to accomplish the purpose for which he gave it. It is inconceivable that the sovereign God who is pleased to give his word as a vital and necessary instrument in the salvation of his people would permit his word to become completely marred in its transmission and unable to accomplish its ordained end. Rather, As surely as that he is God, we would expect to find him exercising a singular care in the preservation of his written revelation. And he has. He has given that to us. I want to go back to something that we talked about weeks ago is not only as we look at this and we try to think through this logically of God's providence overseeing the copies of the Word of God that we have, but as we think about our own lives and as we think about the power of the Word of God in transforming our hearts, we go back to what we stated originally at the beginning is that the Holy Spirit is the one who assures us that what we have in our hands is the very Word of God. And we see the fruit of that in lives that are becoming more and more holy more and more like Jesus. Faith in the consistency of God, that is his faithfulness to his own intention to make men wise unto salvation, guarantees the inference that he never permits scripture to become so corrupted that it can no longer fulfill that end adequately. And so we can conclude theologically, that for all practical purposes, the text of Scripture is always sufficiently accurate, and it will never lead us astray. Amen. If we presuppose a sovereign God, which we do, amen, this is what Cornelius Van Til says, it's no longer a matter of for great worry. That the transmission of scripture is not perfectly accurate from the original. God's providence provides for the essential accuracy of the Bible's copying. So we hold that the Bible which we have in our hands is fully adequate to bring us to Christ, to instruct us in sound doctrine, and to guide us into righteous living. And we've all... Seen that if you've been a believer for any amount of time, you've at least seen the first point of that that it's sufficient to make you wise into salvation and to instruct you in doctrine. Robert, uh, just to sort up,
4: like, I guess, the devil's advocate question, yeah, um, wouldn't presupposing a sovereign god be overstepping if we're assuming that the copies that we have
1: be corrupted, or like with the areas that are corrupted yeah. are talking
0: about the of God, right. we know it or not. Right. That's a good question, and it's a good point. In this issue of errancy versus inerrancy, even those who would say that you have an errant original or would even think of going down that road would still claim that the majority of what we have the essential infallibility of how God has revealed himself to us is true. So nobody would look at this and dismiss the fact that what we have in our hands has inerrant portions within it, and that those are substantial enough to reveal to us who God is essentially. And the reason for that is because and again, this is where people have unfortunately sought to, to put the Word of God down a level and say there's a greater authority than the Word of God by which they can test the things that are written in the Word. So when you look at historical facts, scientific facts, geographical facts, all of those are looking at it and saying, wow, look at the amazing accuracy of this. But they're going to pause when it comes to the revelation of the character of God and, and things of that nature. So that's a good question. When we think about this issue of errancy versus inerrancy, we don't want to say that that those who would look at this would just be like, there's nothing true in this at all, and just kind of toss it aside. They just don't want to go to the extent to say that all of what you have um, in the scriptures is inerrant. And to that we would say, of the copies, we would agree with that. There there are places where um, we're not definitive on that. So you could get somebody that could argue from that standpoint, but I think it would be in in the scholarly realm. There's nobody that I know of that would hold to that to that uh, position of just dismissing entirely the um, the word of God as just an errant errant book. Yeah. Would they would they assume that the presupposing of sovereign God, you have to look to the scriptures to do that, right? Right. So and they would need. Why wouldn't
3: Small we
0: don't have the,
4: the, the original bar, yeah the right? platinum bar right, right. So if the copies have some sort of discrepancy why would not
0: sovereignty of god be why why wouldn't essential things fall in there as to... yeah that's that's a good question i'm not i'm not exactly sure how they would answer that um, I just know from what I've studied, even those that are in opposition to it would hold the truthfulness of it as a majority, I think. Um, but yeah, that's a, that's a good question. I'm not definitive on all who have looked at that. Okay, Chris? Are you taking questions now? Oh yeah, this is, a, this is an open forum.
2: Okay, well, if you have finish your material, I just want to
0: say that what his question is
2: highlighting is... Yep that This is not a doctrinal issue more than it is an epistemolo- it's yes. epistemological issue. Yes, yeah, how can we know and yep. ultimately what we're talking about starting points? Yes, you know, we start as Christians, we start from the position that this is God's word, and then we, we move outward from there. So, if we see any kind of discrepancy from our presupposition to you know this, then it has to be harmonized within the text. Whereas, somebody, they, if they don't start with that presupposition, then they, they'll start finding what they would seem to be discrepancies and and hold the Bible to a standard uh, outside. But this is not, this is not, I, I don't really believe that inerrancy and inerrancy is a doctrinal thing more than a sure. it's epistemological. Sure, yeah. If you're a Christian, you start from this point and you work out from there. If you're not, yeah. you're going to start from some other standard yeah. and work your way back to Christ. And I think that's really where it all boils down to. Personally, yeah,
0: yeah, no, that's that's a good point. That's that's a very, very valid point. Yeah, okay.
1: uh, to piggyback on top of that, it sounds this whole thing is, it seems like it's been an exercise. So, there's a difference between knowing that what we have is accurate, yes, to the original,
0: yes, and knowing that it's true,
1: mm-hmm. they mingle and they overlap quite a bit in the discussions, but we can do. What we use, what we have in our uh, reasoning and logic, and the textual criticisms and all of that, can give us reasonable confidence that this is accurate to the original. Right. But is it fair to say that, in terms of the the, the question about presupposing a sovereign God and all that yeah. things that we read here, um, if we can be re- if we can be reasonably confident that it's accurate? Yep. That. Doesn't necessarily push
0: us over into believing that it's true. And therefore, what requires that is the work of the sovereign God who just talks about it. That's right. Yeah. And and I think that's the point that Chris was bringing out. Oh, I'm sorry. No, no, that's okay. And and no, it was was a very good point of it being more of an epistemological issue than a doctrinal issue. Um, I think that was a good point.
2: Our deals with the theory of knowledge: how you know what you know. So it's we start as Christians. We start from from what, what the Holy Spirit gives us. You know, as Christians, you know, we believe we all believe that the Bible is the Word of God. You know, the moment that we converted. we didn't study it. We didn't do a historical, you know, uh, you know, studying or archaeological stuff like that. We believed it because the Holy Spirit, you know, gave us witness to its truthfulness, and so. That's how we know what we know. We know what we know because because God we start with the point of start with the point of God. So that's our epistemological starting point. Unbelievers don't have that. They start from whatever stands, history, archaeology, whatever,
3: that's
0: kind of what we're
1: talking
4: about. Good point. Yep. That's good. I think okay. is, uh, I'm just gonna yeah. say something along the It's like the Bible is how <coughs> So the Bible is how we know what truth is outside of the Bible, right? So we know this is orange, because the Bible gives us the principles to determine what's true, what's not true, right? We all agree with that. The Bible tells us what's true and what's false. So when it comes to even proving the Bible, we need the Bible to prove the Bible, because the Bible is how we measure all truth anyway. So that's why we have to sort of presuppose. We have to presuppose, we need the theology of the Bible, us to even come to conclusions like inerrancy, things like that, um, and going outside of that is where you get people who reject yes. the scriptures, because yeah. they're, they're using rules that are not yes. Right. So that's why it's important to, 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 to begin with the theology of the Bible in order to make any kind of decisions and assertions about truth. You know, so that's why it seems like a circular argument. Yes. Like, how are you going to argue the Bible by using the Bible? Right. But either you begin with that, or you begin with some guy's theory. Yes. Right. So, yeah.
0: Exactly. All right. Let me let me just press on this good good stuff. Let me just uh, press on real quick here and uh, just hit these last uh, couple points, and then we'll and then I'll come back to, to some questions here. So good stuff. Um, okay. So picking up on that point of how how we or what confidence we can have of the Bible that we hold in our hands that it's fully accurate to bring us to a saving knowledge of Christ to lead us in holy living to instruct us in doctrine. So when we look throughout church history, we see the examples of this as well, right? So, you know, you can read something written by a guy, you know, in the 1600s and you're like, "Amen. That that's exactly how my heart feels on this issue of sin or whatever the case may be." So you see that God working in these ways has been manifested throughout the history of the church despite the presence of these minor flaws that are in the existing copies of the scriptures. So with that, it's clear that the necessity for restricting inerrancy to the original is not of the necessity for effectiveness kind. In other words, because you have these minor impurities, it doesn't mean you just dismiss the whole thing and that it doesn't have any value in your life EJ Young again says this which I don't have but I have here so I'll read it <laughs> that's right exactly I didn't have a little PPT marked by my thing to alert the PowerPoint so I, I was my that was my own error so EJ Young says this it does not follow that only an errorless text can be of devotional benefit to Christians. Nor do those who believe in the inerrancy of scripture maintain such a position. Right? That just because we have copies of the original, which which have these little variants, and that's a term Desmond will pick up on a little bit next week, it doesn't mean that we just say, well, it doesn't have any value for me. I'm not going to pick it up and read it this morning. The copies that we now possess are known to be accurate and sufficient in all matters. And next week, as Desmond kind of gets into this, and you start seeing where those variants are, I really believe, if you've never studied this issue out, that your confidence level is going to rise even more. Um, because you can hear people speaking about this and think, man, how do we even know what the what God has said to us? Um, and textual criticism has done much to silence those statements. So the adequacy of our present copies and translations does not, of course, dismiss that need for textual criticism, right? The truth and the power of the scripture are not annulled by the presence of a degree of textual corruption. This fact, however, says Clark Pinnock, which I agree with him on this, even though I disagree with him on some other things, so don't hear that as a wholesale (laughs) commendation for Clark Pinnock, uh, this fact, however, does not give grounds for complacency. An imperfect text should be replaced by a superior one. And that's why you still have men who are given to the study of textual criticism today and looking at things and saying, this this seems this is more original in this way. And so you'll see throughout the years of maybe a translation that you've had with some minor adjustments along the way. And the reason for that is because they have more assurance with the copies that they have or something else has come along to convince them that this is a better translation for that particular word. Out of respect for God and the uniqueness of his word, the church, as part of its stewardship of the Bible, seeks to do its best to correct the existing copies of Scripture so as to preserve the full impact of what was originally given and to be faithful in those specific issues of faith and practice. Now, people have, as we've said earlier, asked of what use is an inerrant original if it's totally lost from recovery, and that's the issue of textual criticism. That's what textual criticism seeks to do. The outstanding quality of our existing biblical texts is well known, And the original text has been transmitted to us in practically every detail that we have. Frederick Kenyon says this, and I almost went to that, but I don't have a PPT, so it's not on my PowerPoint. He says this The Christian can take the whole Bible in his hand and say without fear or hesitation that he holds in it the true Word of God, handed down without essential loss from generation to generation throughout the centuries. Textual criticism of the copies of Scripture we possess has brought immense comfort to the people of God. Voss, Gerhardus Voss, concludes this, We possess the text of the Bible today in a form which is substantially identical with the originals. B.B. Warfield also says, and this is worth noting, on the other hand, if we compare the present state of the New Testament text with any other ancient writing, we must render the opposite verdict and declare it to be marvelously correct. Such has been the care with which the New Testament has been copied, a care which has doubtless grown out of true reverence for its holy words, such has been the providence of God in preserving for his church in each and every age a competently exact text of the scriptures, that not only is the New Testament unrivaled among ancient writings in the purity of its texts as actually transmitted and kept in use, but also in the abundance of testimony which has come down to us for castigating its comparatively infrequent blemishes." The divergence of its current text from the original may shock a modern printer of modern books. Its wonder approximation to its autograph is the undisguised envy of every modern reader of ancient books. I think that's a great statement there. Does you get into that next week? The New Testament copies versus other ancient texts? Okay. I'm not going to steal your thunder thumb. So the the great mass of the New Testament has been transmitted to us with no or next to no variation. And even in the most corrupt form in which it has ever appeared, Richard Bentley says this, The real text of the sacred writers is competently exact, nor is one article of faith or moral precept either perverted or lost. Choose as awkwardly as you will, In other words, find find the worst one that you can find. Choose the worst by design out of the whole lump of readings, and you will still be amazed by its accuracy. Elsewhere, B.B. Warfield said, those who ridicule the lost originals often speak as though the Bible, as given by God, is lost beyond recovery, and that men are now limited to texts so hopelessly corrupted that it's impossible to say, what was in the original over against this Warfield says this we have the autographic text among our copies in circulation and the restoration of the original is not impossible so B.B. Warfield in his study is looking at that and saying with all of these copies that we have the original is out there we're just trying to do our best to bring that back together in every single word Because that's how seriously it needs to be taken. Amen. So the defenders of the trustworthiness of the scriptures have constantly asserted together that God gave the Bible as the errorless record of his will to men and that he has, in his superabounding grace, preserved it for them to this hour. And he will preserve it for them to the end of time. The charge that God did not apparently deem the preservation of the original text important is pointless because far from being hopelessly corrupt, our copies virtually supply us with the original text. All the ridicule that is heaped on evangelicals about the lost original is simply vain. And here's the reason why. We don't regard it as lost. We have it in our copies and seeking to put all of that together. R. L. Harris, another former professor at Westminster, says this, To all intents and purposes, we have the autographs. And thus, when we say we believe in verbal inspiration of the autographs, we're not talking of something imaginary and far off, but of the texts written by those inspired men and preserved for us so carefully by faithful believers Of a long past age. So the doctrine of original inerrancy does not deprive us today of the Word of God in an adequate form for all the purposes of God's revelation to His people. Presupposing the providence of God in the preservation of the biblical text and noting the outstanding results of the textual criticism of the scriptures that Desmond will expound on. Next week, we can have the full assurance that we possess the word of God necessary for our salvation and for our Christian walk. As a criticism of this evangelical doctrine, suggestions that the original text has been forever lost are groundless and futile. The Bibles that we possess today, that you hold in your hand this morning, are trustworthy renditions of God's original message adequate for that which it Mm -hmm. proclaims. Therefore, we can have great confidence. Okay, I'm finished. Will, you had a question? Some of them do. But not all, so it, there's there's a wide range of it, and that's it. That's that's a great question of how, because again, you have to you have to come back to this. If you're saying that there's that there was error in the original, then where do you where do you stop with that that statement? Especially when you're dealing with theological statements, because they could respond and say, well, we can look at uh, geographic things, we can look at scientific things, historical things, and look at other things that can verify the validity of words of God, the Word of God again subjecting it. But when you come to theological statements of God declaring who He is, then how do you know? So that, that, that's a question that I don't think they can really answer is, um, how, if you're holding that there was error in the original, then why are you even talking about this this God? Um, because how do you know who he is if you're saying that there are there are errors there? Yeah, so, Norm. And then George. Chris was making a point that we, and Will also alluded
3: to that, we, we're not from the outside world. Yeah. Leaving. yeah. And once we have that heart inclination to start in the Bible, um, then we know that what we have is truth. And it brings me to John seven seventeen. If anyone's will is to do God's will, we yeah. know whether the teaching is from God.
0: Yes. Yeah, so, amen.
3: So so if, if we're on the outside and all we want to do is criticize what's on the inside. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. We'll never get to that place, but if we if we dive in and we receive the word of God as is, not the word of man, but the word of God, then automatically, and this is Holy Spirit driven, we get the confidence of what we have is the word of God. So it's never from the outside looking. Correct. You choose to believe. Yep. I know it sounds Armenian, but you choose to believe. (laughs) And then at that point, you know that what you have is the truth. And, and I like what you're presenting, that yeah. all of these guys that are studying, they're making the pure word of God pure because they're really, really uh,
1: removing the impurities.
0: That's right. That's, that's, that's right. Awesome. Yeah, yeah, amen. Okay, we're going to come to one more, and then we got to wrap it up.
1: Is Desmond teaching this
0: week? Desmond is teaching next week. Yes, Desmond is teaching next week. All right, Des. I've really promoted next week, bro. So you gotta, you gotta hit a home run, brother. So, amen. I know you will be. You always are. Um, yeah. So hopefully this is encouraging. Again, to go back to that last point is, we recognize that the Holy Spirit is the one who opens our eyes and reveals these things. But at the same time, that doesn't mean um, that we shouldn't take these things seriously. Um, that we shouldn't really think through these things because yeah. as I was studying this this point out, it was amazing how you would have testimonies of guys who would say that um, when people would bring up this issue of errancy, it didn't cause me to depart from the faith, but it caused me to waver in my walk with the Lord. And we want stability in our walk with the Lord because they're, 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 they felt their foundation was being shaken and nobody was coming to adequately answer those accusations. So even though we believe... This is the word of God, and I'm sure you believe that before we started this discussion. It's good, again, to remind ourselves and to root our hearts afresh in what God has given yes. to us in his word so that that foundation remains strong. Yes. And we don't ever want to stray away from stray away from that. So, okay, I'm sorry, I went a little long. Great questions, good interaction. Look forward to uh, wrapping this study of inerrancy up next week with textual criticism. So let's go ahead and pray with Desmond. <laughs> yes, if I haven't said that,
1: I just called it sweet to before. I yes.
0: yes. Yeah, yeah. Amen. Let's, let's pray. Love you too, brother. To you. Yes, thank, yes you. Lord. Lord. thank you. Praise Okay, let's pray. Father, thank you uh, for the truth of your word, that it is sufficient to bring us to salvation, to cause us to walk in holiness and to increase in holiness, and the promises that we have in it secure our hope that you're going to bring this salvation to its ultimate fulfillment on that glorious day. Lord we thank you for gifts that you have given to the church in men who have given their lives in looking at these issues. They that we, We're beneficiaries of that. Um, we trust that the Holy Spirit is the one who awakens us to that but Lord we trust that through the teachers in the church as well that you have given You build us up in the faith. And so we're grateful for that and we praise you and thank you for it. We pray that you would cause this time of study that the roots of our faith would go even deeper than they currently are. That we would grow in greater holiness because of these things, Lord. That we would be a people who are given more seriously to the word of God. May this study remind us As we arise each morning and we look at the Bible sitting on our nightstand or that we have on our electronic device, that we hold in our hands the very word of God. May we treasure it as such. Please help us to that end. In Jesus' name, amen.